when I look at anti-oppression and I look at oppression and what it looks like in our space and what it means to allow people to lead and to actually take space and to bring their own table and their own chairs versus saying, come up to our table with, with a chair that we're going to give you space to. If we allow people to have a critical lens on our institutions and the ways that our institutions actually perpetuate harm, then we're going to find solutions that are, that are going to be helpful for everyone. Welcome to Specialty Scoop. This podcast is brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. I'm your host, Dr. Guylaine Lefebvre, and I'm an executive director at the Royal College. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode of 2023. Today's topic, anti-oppression in medicine. What does this look like? How does anti-oppression infiltrate the work of medical specialists? And how can we, physicians, surgeons, learners, people in power, how can we influence and encourage equitable space for patients, for learners, and for practicing physicians? It's a privilege to introduce my guest, Dr. Aimé Bouka. Welcome, Dr. Bouka. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me today, Dr. Lefebvre. Today, if you're okay, I'm going to, I'm going to call you Guylaine and you're going to call me Aimé. Thank you, Aimé. Uh, such a pleasure to have you. We are very grateful for you to spend this time with us today. Emmy's a mother of three, and I understand she had her third child during medical school. She has since become a family doctor. She practices in the Northwest Territories in Canada. She sits on the board of directors of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. You, uh, Emmy, are a previous advisor on the board of advisors for the Black Physicians of Alberta Association. And your main interests are beyond looking after your children, your family, the world of Yellowknife and Family Doctor, intersectional environmentalism, as well as anti-racist and anti-oppressive frameworks in medicine. Lots to talk about today. Let's start with where we are. We're both right now in Ottawa, and I know that the health of the planet and the health of the custodians and all who inhabit this planet are very close to your heart. Can I invite you to open this discussion with your acknowledgement of our land? Absolutely. Uh, so, as many should know by now, and that's my hope, huh? Ottawa is built on unceded National Bay Algonquin territory. The National Bay Algonquin people are the custodian of this space and this, the uh, initial inhabitants of this space. And when we talk about land acknowledgements, um, most of the time they appear to be like ceremonies, and they also appear to be a bit of a, a check mark. Um, so I, I like to focus mostly recognizing on whose lands are we play, recreate, work, uh, are allowed to live uh, in peace. I like to share a bit of a reminder about what reconciliation should look like. And reconciliation is an action-oriented term. Um, it is not simply about the reflecting or unlearning elements. It's about what are our next steps around establishing uh, justice in our society. And that includes advocacy. That includes where, what are the, the bite-sized advocacy steps that we can take forward uh, to flatten the hierarchy in our society. Um, so for myself as a practitioner, I reflect about what it looks like for me to acknowledge the land I stand on, meaning 
what do I do to improve the living situation and living conditions of the people I serve on the line I, I stand on? And in my practice, which you mentioned being in Yellowknife, but is actually in Inuvik in the Northwest Territories, which is a territory of the Gwich'in and Inuvialwe people. It is a chronic reminder of myself in terms of what are the social barriers that prevent my patients to, to have a better well-being and better care. That's my land acknowledgement. That's how I reflect about the, the, the space and the land that we call Canada. And I hope that you do the same. Thank you so much, Emmy, and uh, very much a reflection of a podcast we'd recorded with Elder Albert Dumont, who encouraged us to think about land acknowledgement in terms of what it means for us. For me, uh, I live close to the canal in, in Ottawa, and I'm reminded that uh, the custodians of this land, the Algonquin people, were very open to receiving travelers and making them feel like home when they travel through. And I would hope that at the Royal College, we can have that attitude of a welcoming home, not just for our members, but for everyone that we work with and serve. This land acknowledgement, I think, is a is a great segue to the conversation we're about to have on anti-oppression and respecting all of those who we both serve and work with and the trainees that we hope to take to a position of delivering the care we need in this country. Uh, my anecdote on this, I'll never forget this time. And when I was at St. Mike's, we worked with a fabulous um, black nurse leader for our unit. And at one point, we had a family who were really upset with something about the care. So her and I went into the room to discuss. And as we were waiting for family members to arrive, the one person says, it's been really cold this winter, looks at her and says, it must be terrible for you. And she, we're in Toronto, right? And she says, well, it's actually pretty comfortable for me because I come from Kappa's casing. <laughs> and it just highlighted for me how we just, not ill-meaning, but the faux pas and the attitude that we bring into our work and ourselves may lead to an environment that's not particularly welcoming for the people around us. So let's start maybe, if, you, if you'll let me start with a definition of what do we mean by anti-oppression? Yes, absolutely. I, that story actually did make me laugh because, of course, I've heard the same questions and <laughs> or comments in about in particular. Right? <laughs> oh, you must be, uh, you know, you, it must be so hard for you. I'm like, yeah, the fact that I was born and raised in Montreal, you know, makes it I'm pretty accustomed to snow and cold. But sure. <laughs> um, so, in terms of talking about anti-oppression. A term that has a, the suffix of anti in front of it means that we need to really look at the root of the word or the, the flesh of the term, which is oppression. So I think that instead of giving you a definition of anti-oppression, I'm going to give you a definition of, an, of oppression. And this definition that I'm about to read, I'm not going to pretend that this came out of my head, is actually from the Anti-Oppression Network, which is a, a consortium of, of people, grassroots or academics that have a platform online. So if you just Google Anti-Oppression Network, you should be able to find it. And oppression is defined as the use of power to disempower marginalize, silence, or otherwise subordinate one social group or category, often in order to further empower and or privilege the oppressor. So that's what oppression is. So you can infer what anti-oppression should mean. It should mean that we, you know, an attempt to mitigate the effects of oppression and hopefully eventually get to a point where we can dismantle the power imbalances that exist between people, right? That's the idea of anti-oppression. But in order to comprehend 
anti-oppression. You really have to have a solid grasp on what oppression is and what it can look like. In that definition of oppression, then, I and I love this, it's so clear, the use of power to disempower, there is not necessarily an intention in that, in that you, you may not, I, I assume that you may not actually be situationally aware that you're the one with power and what you have just done or said or your behavior has disempowered the people around you, right? So that's very interesting to mention because that can be seen in, in interpersonal circumstances. But at a systemic level, these elements re regarding to oppression and power imbalances are very, very intentional. Often we're maybe dealing with the uh, remnants of, of specific structures that were built to oppress people, right? So I try to affirm or I try to promote the accountability element around anti-oppression. The point is really not to make the oppressor comfortable about the discussion around anti-oppression. And I find that sometimes when we decide to remove intention from the discussion, it might make the oppressor or the majority group more comfortable because it makes it seem like they're not actively harming or they're not intentionally harming. But let's admit that some individuals and some groups and some institutions are built or were built to harm. I think sometimes it may actually makes a dis it does a disservice to remove the intention. And I, I agree with you though. Sometimes one way to address interpersonal dynamics around harm requires people to realize that they might not be aware that certain structures were built to disempower and harm and that they're using certain oppressive tools to cause harm. This is such a clear explanation. Thank you for that. And it, it leads me to ask you about the anti-oppression landscape in Canada's medical system. What does this look like at this time? Hmm, that's an excellent question. I actually spent quite a bit of time reflecting about this. I would call and I would say that the, the landscape currently looks like it's at the embryonic stage. And I'm not saying that in a mean way. And I think I'm just specifically being critical. And critical is not necessarily a negative term. It's mostly a reflective term. There are multiple wonderful scholars and practitioners that have been in the medical space and have been trying to be vocal about how uh, oppression harms our, our patients. But I have to say that in the last few years, we've seen a desire to incorporate anti-oppressive frameworks in the, in the medical curriculum. So that's the reason why I say embryonic stage, because it's not a question of who has been doing the work in the past. I believe that these terms and these concepts are as old as oppression itself. However, in terms of seeing um, institutional motivation or uh, involvement, I believe that this is relatively new. Some faculties are maybe embracing the, the concept of anti-oppression within their space, but maybe other spaces that don't necessarily have the motivated leadership may be reluctantly stepping into that space. There's a great impetus right now at the Royal College for what our role can be. I So Royal College, basically, we do two main things. We set standards and examine to reach those standards 
and we enable physicians to be the best they can be along their entire career. Um, Anti-oppression actually has roots in both those things, I believe, uh, and there may be a place to contributing to frameworks in anti-oppression. I'd like to believe that the majority of us in medicine want to do the right thing and are ashamed of what may have come before us and don't want to perpetuate the the oppressive landscape of the past, we don't know how. We yes. don't know. So how can we get involved at individual level, at local level? I know we have a systemic uh, opportunity, perhaps, to help people not reinvent the wheel. Absolutely. I do have to provide a lens of uh, or a wind of optimism. Um, I am seen, I perceive myself as being a realist. And I try to hover not in the pessimistic side of my brain, but actually remain optimistic. And I have to say that there's been a beautiful wind of optimism uh, that's been flowing, especially as I reflect on the review of the CanMeds 2025 that we're in the process of doing. And I know that this is going to be grounded and rooted in anti-racism and anti-oppression. And I'm not, I hope I'm not, I'm not unveiling a scoop here, but I'm very excited about this. I'm very excited about this, not because not because of what it means at the institutional level, but I, it's mostly about who we're allowing to, to lead. So when you ask me that question about what are we supposed to do? Allow for others to lead. That's the first step. The reason why we've been swimming in the, in the ocean of oppression for so long is because our spaces were designed by and for certain types of people. And these were supposed to represent the majority. And because we've allowed and we've, we've tolerated this imbalance for such a long time, it becomes very hard for people who are accustomed to power to determine what they need to do to flatten the hierarchy. By allowing people who have historical uh, marginalization to lead, not, not as a gift, right? Because I also want to be very clear about this. It's not about being kind and leaving and creating space. It's about the expertise. It's about the knowledge that certain people simply don't have. It's about acknowledging the expertise of others. It's about acknowledging that there is epistemic racism that prevents us from seeing actually very interesting frameworks coming from other places that are not Western-centric. So the first step in terms of determining how we can really weave in into oppression in our institutions is looking around and determining and observing and see who's leading right now and what expertise do we lack and where we, sh we should be getting that expertise. So I hope this is helpful. That's probably one of the biggest uh, biggest impressions that I have from, from our space. It's not only helpful, I think for me, it resonates very well with what I've seen in my own career where the patient now should be at the center of care, right? So patient as a member of the care team, not purely as a receiver. And who am I to determine what my patient needs? My patient should be determining what they need along with the team who can, of course, provide options and, and information. Absolutely. Is that a similarity where who am I to second guess what oppression looks like in in my situation as a privileged mm -hmm. Caucasian woman in Canada, right? I think there are parallels. I, I do think there's a bit of differences as well, right? Because ultimately, when we center the patient, we're still there to serve the patient. 
and at the end of the day to provide the optimal care for that patient. There's still, I wouldn't call it a, a hierarchy, but more of a directionality of what we as a care team are supposed to provide to the patient. I'm trying to remove this directionality when we speak about anti-oppression, right? Ultimately, it is immaterial, (laughs) immemorial uh, around what does it look like as a framework at the institutional level and as a societal, at a societal level. We're talking about this current hierarchy that involves dominant groups such as people who are white, people who are settlers, people who are rooted in the Western world, who are English speaking, for example, who are either, you know, I'd say Anglo-Christian as being at the holder of powers in our space. And you need to realize that we're really not trying to approach this in a paternalistic framework, right? In terms of saying, oh, we need to help the oppressed groups. Oppressed groups actually need dominant groups to step aside and allow them to actually enact existing framework to remove harm. Modern medicine was not technically designed to harm. However, oppression was always designed to acquire power and in that extension, harm other groups. So we're, we're seeing the parallels between patients and care teams, but there are very key, very important differences that we need to highlight there. This is such a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. It's Groups in power who have continued, I'll say, the path forward that's oppressive mm-hmm. need to get out of the way <laughs> and to let others lead who actually will have the solution because they've suffered the consequence in a sense. Absolutely. I assume that in saying that, we we need to allow others to lead we should not be abdicating our role in making mm-hmm. room for those other people to lead. Absolutely. And I think that's very important because it doesn't mean that we, that doesn't mean that dominant groups or people who are known to have privilege and power need to, to disappear into the oblivion. That is definitely <laughs> not the message there. And I really hope that people stick along, uh, along long enough to, to hear this. It really is not about that. It's mostly, it's mostly trying to realize that when we allow people who have historically been marginalized or oppressed to to take a bigger role in our institutions, what we realize is that the advice or the frameworks or the tools that they they bring forward actually help everybody. A good example of that, I'll just give you a very, very concrete example that might help illustrate what I'm trying to explain. If you think about maternity leave or parental leave, when you look at maternity leave that was really put forward by women working groups that explain that this is what we need to allow women to be in the working space, to uh, improve society as a whole. But look at who also is able to take parental leave now. It's not only cis women who are birthing people who are able to have biologically bear and deliver babies that end up being able to take parental leave. Other types of people can benefit as well. So we have cisgender men, who are partners, people who are gender diverse, people who are not birthing parents, who adopt, are also able to take parental leave. So when I look at anti-oppression and I look at oppression and what it looks like in our space and what it means to allow 
people to lead and to actually take space and to bring their own table and their own chairs versus saying, come up to our table with with a chair that we're going to give you space to. If we allow people to have a critical lens on our institutions and the ways that our institutions actually perpetuate harm, then we're going to find solutions that are going to be helpful for everyone. I'll put you on the spot a little bit with, would you have some concrete examples of listening to this, I am passionate to want to make a difference. Is there anything that you could suggest I can do tomorrow that would be helpful? I say, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to, uh, this is kind of my 2023 (laughs) resolution, even though I don't like, I don't like resolutions, but this is uh, something that I want to amplify this year. Look at where you are. Step into every space, understanding your positionality in that space. Recognize in the, the ways in which you have power and the ways in which you disempower. And look at the room and try to find the person that has the least power into that room and actually have conversations with that person. And attempt to, if they're willing, I don't want you to coerce people into into being like, please tell me about your oppressions. That's not the point, right? It's mostly trying to be not only introspective about your position in the world, but also open towards, towards the world to identify what others may be in need of. And then also just read the literature around who has less power and what is written, whether it is formally peer review or not, because we already talked about epistemic racism and how knowledge is not just one shape and form of knowledge. Read about what's written by these type of people, right? About these groups that are disempowered or that have been uh, marginalized. And the knowledge is there. We're not, as you said, reinventing the wheel. So I think that the first step is actually acknowledging who we are and observing and finding and and actually seeing and observing the hierarchy within the spaces that we are in. And may I, this has been such a phenomenal conversation. And here's some takeaways for me. First of all, using power to disempower. That's what oppression is. And in our work to eliminate oppression, so as anti-oppression, we have to allow others to lead. But in doing that, don't abdicate your role in giving those others space. Would that be a, a clear enough summary, do you think, of where we've gotten to in this short conversation? That's actually a beautiful and a beautiful summary that really encapsulates the spirit of our conversation. Yes. Dr. Buka, um, really, thank you so much. Do you have any final words that we haven't addressed yet that you'd like to share with our listeners? My last words would be um, stumble, make mistakes, fall, but don't give up. Thank you for that. And I'll, uh, a little shout out to our, our friend and colleague, Dr. Kanino Setutu, who I remember saying to Kanine how, you know, inevitably you'll make mistakes and having a conversation with him where I so admire his guidance on the fact that if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough in this space. (laughs) And it it is a bigger mistake to not even try. Thank you, Dr. Buka. With all your passion and your work, it's so clear that uh, you're keen on making not only healthcare more equitable for the entire community, but you really do want to make the world better. 
Thank you to our listeners for tuning into Specialty Scoop. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, give us a rating, write a review, and don't forget to share this episode on social media with your peers. Write to us at fellowshipaffairs at royalcollege.ca with suggestions or feedback on this podcast. Until next time, I'm Guylaine Lefebvre.